I want to uh, back up a little bit to uh, the end of chapter 2. When he was, uh, verse 23, when he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in his name because they saw the signs he was doing. But Jesus on his part would not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to testify about anyone for he himself knew what was in everyone. The editor of my recordings uh, sent me a comment. He was kind of wishing he could be here and discuss with us. Uh, <laughs> he really gets into these from week to week. And, and uh, he, ma- he pointed out something that I thought I would share with you. He sees Jesus as knowing what is in people. And what is in people is our tendency to exploit, to take advantage of, to manipulate, to control for our own agendas. And the opposite of that is vulnerability. That Jesus is a vulnerable person, and we're to be vulnerable people. Uh, and, and so this not trusting, you can't trust people who, who use and abuse people. This not trusting people, because he knew what was in them. He knew our, our almost innate tendency to... Uh, take advantage of situations and people to serve our selfish ends. So I, th- I thought it was an interesting comment. I wanted to pass that on to everyone yeah. here and listening. And now we're ready for chapter 3, John chapter 3. And uh, let's start uh, left to right today. Christian, would you read verses 1 to 10, please? Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to him by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from, and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and do not understand these things? Uh, Shalina, why don't you read verses 11 to 21. I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen. But still, you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How, then, will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone to heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the light in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light, because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light, and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. There's been historically, both in the Adventist Church, I think, and in the, in the larger Christian community, particularly among evangelicals, a debate on whether salvation and the atonement, therefore, is objective or subjective. Could you elaborate on that some more? <laughs> I, did I hear irony in your voice? <laughs> Fascinating. <laughs> um, objective would mean it was totally legal, outside, apart from us, done deal at the cross. We had no participation in it. Any participation we have done in it is, is works. That's objective atonement. Subjective atonement is that we have to participate in order to be saved. And among evangelicals, and say that again. It, among Adventists, this has been debated, and I suspect among evangelicals as well, because it comes from evangelical theology. <clears throat> it's not inherent in Adventist theology. The reason I even point this out is because where would you place... Jesus talking about salvation to Nicodemus as objective or as subjective? I mostly say this is more towards the uh, objective atonement because Jesus is just basically saying whoever believes. But that's something we do. It's not something totally outside of us. The, the, probably the most difficult thing for me is to understand that there are people out there that simply do not believe. That is very difficult for me to understand because the love of Jesus and God, is, it's just so innate when we accept that kind of love and that kind of sacrifice. And so to try to get a grasp on individuals on people that are out there that simply will refuse it's just it's difficult for me refuse to believe um, and yet we know that there are masses out there that absolutely refuse to believe in Jesus and that is just heartbreaking would would those masses maybe be more welcoming of an objective view of atonement where they don't have to do anything it's all done and they just accept it, and that becomes their belief. We were talking about this uh, last night, actually, 
about um, you're over at Jim Clifton's house and we were talking about this and his view and his friend's view was um, that God did everything already for us and then like one of the ways he was trying to explain like to Donnie and Laura was like all you have to do is believe and that was his view right? That's you know, what I got. Close to it. I mean, <laughs> I mean, we were talking about how it's it's a process. It's like a transformative experience mm-hmm. uh, yeah. coming coming mm-hmm. to God. Mm-hmm. It's not like because you you were, you were saying that like um, you're okay the way you are, but you're not okay the way you are. Yeah. So like God accepts you into His family, but as being part of that family, um, if you immerse yourself into that family, you're going to change. It's because as you go into that light, you'll notice all the things that um, that you were hiding from the light. What good does something done in a courtroom, far removed from my experience, do me if I'm not a participant in it? And and see, this this comes back to the nature of the problem. What is the problem we're trying to solve that Jesus is trying to save us from? Sin. From sin. It's send something objective. No. You participate. No, sin doesn't exist apart from my own in, in mental processes. Um, and if that's the case, salvation has to be subjective. Or God can't save us from sin. Now, the problem is that those who hold the objective view of atonement believe that Jesus saved us from God not from sin, from God's wrath. And so that changes the ballpark. I would argue that that's still a subjective atonement. It's just a different subject. Instead of it being us, it's God, uh, whose mind has to be changed, whose wrath has to be assuaged, etc., in order to forgive and love us. So that's why I feel that that whole discussion is moot <laughs> in a sense. I don't think there is such a thing as holy, objective atonement and salvation. Now, I will, I will say this, that we did not initiate salvation. Salvation is not something we made up or, or created in any way. God is the initiator. God is the source of love. He is the source of light. He is the source of everything. So, when I look at John, what I see really is very subjective because... He says, you cannot see the kingdom of God without being born from above. And, and some argue that's works. Well, it is works. It's God's work in me. It's not my work in myself. That's fascinating because the more we yield ourselves up for service, the more God can work through us. And, and there's this uh, being born of flesh is flesh and being born of the water and the spirit and, and all of that. I think probably verse 17 uh, for me really kind of hits at home. Regardless of which translation you read, the essence is the same in verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, mm. but to save the world through him. 
Yeah, now we're jumping a little ahead. <laughs> Can we back up and, and deal with the first part first? That, that passage has is, is got to be probably the highlight of today. But um, I want to come back to, uh, to this concept of, of experiential and versus, objective versus subjective. Uh, what is this new birth experience? What is this being born from above? Do we understand it any better than Nicodemus? Yeah. <clears throat> Why do you suppose Nicodemus had such difficulty with this? That will kind of answer the question. Okay. Yeah. Well, let's Why? ask that. I mean, he was a he was in, he was part of the ruling council. This was a learned man. This was a a, a, a person a a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee who had come up and worked his way up through the church, right? So of all people he should have known. And yet the same condition exists today. That the leadership... It, Satan's MO is to go after the leadership. And to confuse the leadership as much as possible. Mm-hmm. And so the fascinating parallel of Nicodemus then... And what is occurring today seems to be almost the same thing. Mm-hmm. And so, when no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit, Jesus elaborates a little bit further that flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to spirit. And this would be really jumping ahead, but we know that all people are drawn to the Lord because of the Lord. And so, to the Spirit, being sensitive to the movement of the Spirit and giving up much of ourselves... That is the indication of where the wind blows. We don't, we don't know when we're going to be moved upon or not. But when we yield ourselves up for service, when the wind blows and we know it's coming and our conscience says this or that, then we can recognize it and know what it is because we've been born of the Spirit. And those who have been born of the Spirit... Oh. No, go ahead. Those of us who are constantly seeking, looking for truth, born of the Spirit. We know that when we're moved upon, step one is to, okay, I was inspired to do this or that. Let me go to Scripture. Let me make sure it matches Scripture. Okay, it matches Scripture. That is the Holy Spirit. It seems that Nicodemus had the problem that a lot of us have of taking things literally. So he, he sees, he hears Jesus say, you must be born again, going back into the mother's womb and becoming an infant again. And Jesus actually is meaning born from above. And the reason we know that is because the Greek word for again also means above. Mm. So uh, there's, a, there's a 
play on words going on in this chapter, and and as a result, Nicodemus is struggling because he sees it one way and Jesus is meaning it another way. And so that's one issue. And, and that's why Jesus says what is born of the flesh is the flesh. When you're born from the womb, uh, you really are born with a propensity, a strong propensity to sin. And it's almost in your nature to sin, um, not in your nature. So, um, part of our slavery into sin, part of our captivity. Yeah. So Jesus is saying you have to be born from above. What does that mean? If, if you were to take that metaphor and completely expand on it, when you're born in the beginning, in your first birth, how were you born? I mean, what, had to, what, what gave rise to your birth? Say that again, what, what gave rise? Yeah, how did we come into existence? What had to happen? Two people had to come together. Two people had to come together, and they're called what? Man and woman? <laughs> what did we call them growing up? <clears throat> oh, yeah. Boys and mom girls. and dad. Oh, yeah. mom and dad, yeah. <laughs> so, if we're born from above, it means a new set of parents. Right? A heavenly set of parents. A new father. And I think that's what's going on here. I, I actually didn't create that. Uh, one of my former students who works here at the college did, uh, Rico Mundy, uh, pointed this out to me. And the actual birth process, we weren't there. We didn't see us being born. Uh, we don't remember it. And so it's like we came... From the wind, and we, because for all we know, we just happened. Hmm. And we are a vapor here for just a very short time. Mm-hmm. So, so when he says um, uh, the wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes, so is everyone who's born in the spirit. You cannot, you cannot get that birth, new birth experience down to a science. It defies that kind of calculation, that kind of analysis, that kind of of understanding. Now, I had a very dramatic conversion. At least to me it was dramatic. And and I can tell you all of the circumstances that led me to that point. But but that actual point of embracing the love of God and, and recognizing uh its call in my life do I can I explain that? No. So When Jesus talks about salvation, he talks about it in terms of seeing the kingdom of God. Does that mean, oh, now I see it and I can walk into it? Because Jesus has come, so you can't get to heaven without being born from above. Or is it seeing as in perceiving? Because the words to see in the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, has to do with perception many times. So is this seeing the kingdom as in I'm, I'm going to heaven, or is it seeing the kingdom as in I now perceive the kingdom? Which do you think it is? The kingdom does not come by observation, but the kingdom of heaven is within you. That's jumping ahead, sorry. 
But isn't there perception going on in this chapter? Yeah, the kingdom the kingdom is not by our human observation, but that's because we can't see it unless we're born from above. Isn't that correct? That's what enables us to see. Nicodemus is just astonished. It's like the NIV says in verse 9, how can this be? It, from, from a man that was so learned, it, it, the focus was completely on the earthly things, it appears. Well, have you ever read the Talmud? The Talmud is confined to minutia and is a total discussion among rabbis about minute things in the law. It's very, it's very concrete. It's very literal. It, and it, it does sometimes moves in metaphorical spheres, and it sometimes has very deep and, and broad, far-reaching meaning, but it still is very focused on minute things, such as, is it breaking the Sabbath to pull your bread out of the oven? You know, finished baking before sundown, but now can you pull it out of the oven on Sabbath? You know, those are the kinds of things the Talmud discusses. So, it raises the question, if Nicodemus, with all his learning, had really ever learned of Jesus. He hadn't. So I would like to suggest that we ask another question. If suppose Jesus had come, he lived his life, and he died the death for sin, but he never gave us the Holy Spirit. Would we, could we be saved? The Holy Spirit is like Jesus coming back. The, it's like what he said to the disciples when he was leaving, or the language that he uses later in John. Um, it's so close to himself, the Holy Spirit. It's like Jesus coming back again. And but could can could we be if if Jesus' death is all we need to for salvation? Couldn't he just said the, the the way I've I've been taught is that the Holy Spirit comes in order to imbue us and enable us to be a viable witness. But could we be saved without it? No. No. <clears throat> There's a, you know, maybe to move back even more to the elementary portion of the Holy Spirit, Holy Ghost, and review just the primary functions of the Holy Ghost. And the number one function of the Holy Spirit is to convict us, or the world, of sin. And then the next thing that the Holy Ghost does is convert convert. Once the conviction happens, oh yeah, I know I did wrong, then the conversion takes place. Then the third thing is we have a cleansing. This is the third primary function of the Holy Ghost, is to begin the cleansing, and then finally, and this is just a synopsis work of the Holy Ghost, and then finally to commission or make us useful for service. So to convict convert, cleanse, and then commission us 
to make us useful for service. I just read a statement this morning, and that's what I've been looking for. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I wish I could find it. But let me see if I bring it up with one word. I've been looking in the book that I've been reading for my devotions. But not able to quite spot it. Um, Selected Messages, Book 3. The chapter on the Incarnation. Where she says, What avail would it be for Jesus to have come, become a human being, live the life of obedience, and die the death, if the Holy Spirit were not given to us? And she infers that it would be of no avail. So, I'm still trying to find it. Uh, Here we go. Let's see. This computer is very, very slow. Okay, the Holy Spirit. Okay, here it is. Of what avail would it have been to us that the only begotten Son of God had humbled himself, endured the temptations of the wily foal, and wrestled with him during his entire life on earth, and died the just for the unjust, that humanity might not perish, if the Spirit had not been given as a constant, working, regenerating agent to make effectual in our case what has been wrought out by the world's Redeemer. That's why I find John 3 so important to understanding salvation. And it it undergirds to me the fact that it is experiential. It isn't just experiential. But in a sense, it's all experiential because God experienced salvation in the process of giving us salvation. That is not that he was saved, but that he, he founded salvation in his Son. He gave us salvation in his Son, and that whole giving was experiential. From the, from the birth of Jesus to the resurrection of Jesus and his ascension to heaven. So, uh, I just see this, this whole thing as extremely experiential, whether it's God experiencing it through Christ or us experiencing it by learning of Christ and by the Holy Spirit's work on our lives. So, what it seems to happen is that Jesus starts with this chapter with a bunch of metaphors, right? The wind. The wind, the spirit, the, the uh, born from above. He starts with these metaphors, and then he moves into explanation. Once he says, how can these things be? Jesus uh, spends a little time admonishing him in his lack of understanding. And then he says, verse 13, No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. It's interesting that he mentions Moses there, right after saying no one has ascended to heaven except the one who came to heaven. Because we know that Moses... And Elijah are in heaven. Right. So, 
That's in, that is interesting, isn't it? That's a fascinating study. But to back up just a little bit more on the Holy Spirit, it is the primary mechanism for the renewal of the, of the heart, being touched by the Holy Ghost and the softness and the love. I always, I've, I've come to see the Holy Spirit as the one who gives me those daily hugs that I need. You know, how many hugs do you need a day in order to be a healthy person? <laughs> you mean there's a limit? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a minimum. <laughs> there's not a maximum, there's a minimum. Um, but I, I've come to see that, that is that presence that just surrounds me. And, and enables me to experience the love of God rather than just hear about it and talk about it and think I see it. I get to experience it. And he's the one, of course, who directs my focus and my attention on the one who's lifted up. And you remember elsewhere Jesus says, and this is in the Gospel of John again, uh, I, if I be lifted up, will draw all to me, and the all is not all men. It is all inclusive, the whole universe. And Ellen White elaborates on that to suggest that the entire universe needed the cross to protect them, to keep them from sin. Because they needed they needed the the what Jesus accomplished there. So, so Jesus starts out with this. Uh, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man be lifted up. And this is now bringing us into a healing metaphor. Because what was the serpent being lifted up about? Everyone was dying. Everyone was dying and, and being bitten by the, by the snakes. Yeah. And by looking at that serpent, they would be healed. And it is by, be, by looking, by beholding, that we become changed. I think that's the, where Jesus is headed with this. And so, so what, what, what do we behold when we see him lifted up? So then that follows. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that anyone or everyone who believes in him, and keep in mind that word, that word believe is also the word for trust. Whoever trusts, in him. Mm-hmm. And to me that's extremely important because is the problem disbelief or is it a lack of trust? And I know maybe I'm splitting hairs. But we tend to think of belief as an, like factual belief. I believe that's true. Mm-hmm. But trust is something bigger. Trust has to do with an individual's trustworthiness. And if, I, if that's called into question, I mean, you think of the political scene right now in America and trust. Um, Isn't the issue that's going to drive the voting the issue of trust? Who do you trust? Mm -hmm. Enough to put a yes in the ballot. And, And it seems to me that this is what Satan has called into question. This is what the serpent, thinking of the serpent as a serpent being lifted up, the serpent in the in the Garden of Eden got Adam and Eve to fall because he caused them to distrust God mm-hmm. by his lies about him. 
Uh, so, so this is very crucial. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him may not perish. Whoever trusts in him may not perish. And note that word perish. This is not so that they may not be put to death. This is actually what we call the middle voice of Greek. And it really literally means may not destroy themselves. So whoever trusts in him may not destroy themselves, but may have eternal life. So right away Jesus is saying, God is not the destroyer. Sin is the destroyer. You're the ones destroying yourselves, and I've come to save you. Okay? And then, as if that isn't clear enough, Indeed, God did not send his Son into the world to judge the world. And I know your translations have condemn, as mine does. But the Greek word is not condemn. It's a different Greek word to condemn. It's katakrino. Judge is krino. And krino is what is used here. Yeah, that's the version. Does it? To judge, yeah. To judge. That is really what it literally means. God did not send his Son into the world to judge the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. I'm not only your destroyer, not your destroyer, I'm not your judge. I didn't come to judge you, but to save you. What if the church modeled that? Hmm, that would throw a wrinkle into the investigative judgment. Why? Oh, that's a long discussion. <laughs> I know that is. <laughs> I know that is. It doesn't throw a wrinkle in the investigative judgment for me. It just illuminates it. I, I mean, I think, I think we've had a distortion of the investigative judgment, frankly. And I think we've been practicing it down here on earth a great deal. The practicing of distortion, by the way, not, not the real thing. <laughs> uh, and, and if we don't get it, he says, those who trust in him are not condemned, but those who do not trust are condemned already. Okay, so those who, who trust in him are not judged. But those who do not trust are judged already. Why? Because they have not trusted in the name that is the character of the Son of God. Name in the Bible represents character. And this is the judgment. That light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For all who do evil hate the light and do not come to the light, so that their deeds may not be exposed. But those who do what is true come to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that their deeds have been done in God. What is the judgment? Is it what God decides about us? Or is it our decision about God? It's what we do with the light. It's our decision about God. But what Jesus does, if you study this out, Zechariah 3, Job 1 and 2, what Jesus does to, def- to uh, mediate is to work on our minds through the Holy Spirit and to convince the universe that we're safe to save. So he's our defense attorney. And he can't defend someone who's already judged. 
because they've rejected the light. So, this is the judgment. Not what God decides about us, but what we decide about God. And Jesus' work is to ratify and bring to light the true decision we have made. By showing our works. Our works determine 